Thank you, Luke and Josh and Hannah, for leading us this morning. Uh, beautiful lyrics. Uh, I know that that's a, a newer song for some of you, but what, what a beautiful old hymn that talks about the kindness of our God to draw us in, to cause us to hear his voice so that we would feast. What a beautiful hymn, and, and really what a beautiful reminder to us. I know that this week, just for me personally, was so eerily familiar to uh, what we went through back in March, April, and May of 2020, where somebody says, hey, I'm sick, and I don't know what it is, and then, hey, I actually tested positive for COVID, and we're trying to figure out who all was around them, and, and then we're praying for our loved ones, and then their family members, uh, our brother Brian, who is in uh, the hospital, he's getting better, praise the Lord. Uh, keep praying for him. Keep encouraging uh, the next family and keep praying for our brother. Uh, for Tracy, feeling better, praise the Lord. For Carissa, uh, our other drummer, feeling better, praise the Lord. Um, but just thinking through the beauty of the gospel, I, I wrote in that email a few days ago when I was talking with Tess about uh, her having COVID and, and all that that was going to do for her taking the CPA exam and all of the things that might change for her schedule. And she said she was meditating on the psalmist and that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. We have forgiveness, so really who cares about the rest of it? God's done the hardest thing, and so he will take care of the easiest things as well. So praise the Lord for that. I also wanted to say uh, a huge thank you to our tech team. This is why we fought to have live stream at the beginning of COVID, and that was all Sam's doing. Sam couldn't be here today because he was taking care of Tess, who uh, had COVID, and so be praying for our brother Sam. But Sam is actually working right now. I don't know how he's doing this, but he is controlling my computer from his computer in his room somewhere, not here. Uh, so he's still helping us. Thank you, Sam, for helping us. Alec obviously is home taking care of his wife. Alec had cold symptoms, thought it might be COVID. He turned out to not even have COVID. So it's just, this is all chaos and craziness, but our God is in control. He is the one who owns every single molecule, right? He directs it all. So praise the Lord. I was also talking to our brother Sergio in the back that how crazy is it to look around and feel that this is empty when this, for those of you who weren't here before COVID happened, uh, this is what it normally looked like. And so what an amazing work God has done in our church to get us to the place where we are desperately looking for a church building and we need one. Um, and to see this again and to feel this as being more empty than it normally is, is a good thing. Um, God has been just doing amazing things. So praise the Lord. One last announcement. I have to do this. I was supposed to do this during announcements. But my family, I'm not going to wear this now because, uh, well, you can see it. Um, I will wear it at the end. My kids are supposed to see it because they made it for me. It's, it says Top Dad. It's supposed to be a top hat. Um, and uh, it says Fun, Loving, and Awesome, Best Dad. Tyler wrote that I'm better than General Grievous, so that's good. And Ethan's, Ethan's biggest memory of me is me being allergic to dogs because I sneeze. He literally drew a picture of me sneezing and said, fun. I don't think that's fun at all, but 
I'll wear it after, and now you know why I'm doing that. All right, done with announcements. If you have, yes, Glenn. Today is my anniversary as well, yes. It is our 12, thank you, Glenn. It is our 12-year, <laughs> you guys are so kind. Thank you so much, Glenn. It is uh, a blessing. I texted you this morning, actually. It's a blessing to be married to your best friend and to genuinely enjoy every single second that we've been married. Praise the Lord. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm chapter 91. Psalm 91. We were supposed to be in Revelation 13, as I said earlier. The Antichrist will wait for us uh, till next week. Because this week was so eerily familiar to last year, with all of the updates that we've gotten about health, with all the people that were exposed, with uh, Brian being in the hospital, with praying for everyone to recover quickly, uh, we've come to the tail end of a weird year. And I don't know about you, but I was kind of feeling like, hey, we're done. It's over. Yay, we're, we're out of that. Phew, it's done. And this week was really a good reminder that not only are we not done with COVID exactly, but we're also never really going to be done with anything, right? Until we get to heaven, trials will always be our normal experience as believers. We will always be experiencing suffering, trials, and discouragement. Shakespeare says it well, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven upon the face. He says each new hour, we could say each new minute. And so the question before us this morning is how are we to exist through trials? Every single one of you has come this morning or is watching this morning with some trial that's going on in your life. And you might be thinking, well, it's not that bad. I don't have COVID. I'm not in the hospital. It's not that bad. And I would encourage you to not think that way. Praise the Lord that maybe it's not as bad as some of the other trials that others are experiencing, but trials are relative. Suffering is relative. What you are going through right now, God has tailor-made that for you. So see that trial, own that trial. And I want to ask the question, how are we going to experience that trial in a way where God becomes our refuge, God becomes our greatest satisfaction, and we learn in the midst of the trial. How can we live an unworried, unanxious, joyful, content, satisfied life? And so as we begin in Psalm 91, I want you to be thinking, what is the trial that you're currently going through? What's the sorrow that your heart has most recently experienced? What's the, the hope that you had that has been dashed to pieces? What's the discouraging news you received this last week? Where's that relationship that's broken that you're trying everything you can to mend and it's not mending? What is it for you that you can look at Psalm 91 and you can take what the psalmist is going to say, what the Lord's going to speak to us about this morning and go back to him and find your refuge in him? In January, uh, January 5th to be specific, 1933, one of the largest, most spectacular suspension bridges in the world was beginning its construction. Ultimately, it would span 8,981 feet through midair and stand at the entrance of San Francisco Bay. Uh, you know the name of it. It would, become, it would come to be known as the Golden Gate Bridge. And as it was being constructed, many workers who were working on it 
lost their lives because as they were working on it, they would fall to their death at the water below over 200 feet below them. And so someone had an idea to make a net, to, to construct a safety net, and it actually cost over $100,000 to do that, which back then, post-Depression, was a whole lot of money. But once that safety net was built, not only did workers stop dying, plunging to their deaths, but because they saw that they didn't have to be afraid of falling, they started working even faster, even harder, and it was constructed at an even faster rate than they had expected. The same effect happens for us with God's sovereignty. But God's sovereignty isn't a safety net below us. It's his character that stands above us, that covers every single thing that we do. It's not a net below. It's a refuge that we can run into above us in heaven, our security, our protection, and our hope. So let's read Psalm 91 together, and we will ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, because it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day or of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you nor will any plague come near your tent because he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with a long life. I will satisfy him and I will let him see my salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now as we come before you that your Holy Spirit would work in us both here in this room and for those who are watching online. That your spirit would convict us, encourage us, comfort us, challenge us. Father, I pray that all of the fears that we have, the, the worries that we have, the anxieties that we have, that this morning we would bring those to the surface, we would see those in light of what the psalmist is saying, and that we would be conformed to the image of Christ who in the midst of his darkest hours entrusted himself to you as his refuge. So help us to do that this day. To hide ourselves in Christ. We pray it in his name for his glory. Amen.
Charles Spurgeon said of this psalm that in the whole collection of the Psalter, there is not a more cheering psalm. Its tone is elevated and sustained throughout, faith at its best and speaking most nobly. That's what this psalm is all about. It's about describing what faith looks like at its best. The author is anonymous. We don't know who it is. Uh, we don't even know the background, really, of what's going on. Some people say it was a battle that David was experiencing. Some people say it was uh, the people of Israel that Moses was experiencing. There's a tradition that says if a, if, a, if a psalm does not have a name attached to it, then it was written by the last author to be mentioned, which in Psalm 90 we know is uh, Moses who wrote that psalm. That's uh, just a tradition that doesn't have to actually be uh, the specific author. And it's good that we don't really know. We don't know, and it's helpful for us that we don't know exactly the circumstances because that means it's a lot easier for you and for me to put ourselves in this text, to find ourselves in the midst of the darkness that this psalmist is going through. And there are really two main points in this psalm. The first is that the psalmist is going to teach us about the protection that he has from the Lord, and the second is that the Lord is going to teach us about the promises that he has towards his people. So let's start with the first one. The psalmist, number one, is going to teach us on the protection that the Lord gives. The psalmist is going to teach us about the protection of the Lord. This is verses 1 through 13. And the psalmist is going to teach us based on his experiences, based on what he's gone through. He knows that this is the way God is because he's been through trials and difficulties and suffering, and he's seen God hold him and sustain him through every single trial. So he knows that this is the way God is for him, and it's the way that God will be for those who dwell in him and find their refuge in him. Verse 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He who dwells, notice that word dwell is not staying somewhere for a short time. It's not showing up, enjoying a hotel stay, and then going back to your home. No, dwelling is your home. Whoever dwells, whoever makes their home in the Most High, there's a promise attached to it. If you make your home in the Most High, you will abide. That's a money-back guarantee. You will abide in Him. You will find your shelter in Him. You will find your shade in the shadow of the Almighty. But I think so often, Christians, and we can use that in quotation marks, nominal Christians, people who claim to be Christian, they don't dwell in God. They don't find their dwelling in Him. They just dabble. Christ is their dabbling place. Much of the difficulty, danger, and damages that we face in our Christian life is caused by dabbling in Christianity. Dabbling with the things of God rather than being intentional about dwelling in the presence of God. Don't dabble in Christianity. Don't think that showing up at a Bible study means that you're dwelling in his presence. If you dabble in Christianity, this promise in verse 1 is not yours to hold and to keep and to know. You will not abide. But if you find Christ to be your all in all, if you make him your dwelling place, then you will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. That's beautiful language for those that 
live in the Middle East, right? For a shepherd in the Middle East or for somebody wandering around in the Middle East to know that there's a place of shelter, that's what they're looking for all the time, 24-7. As the sun is just beating down on them in the desert, they just want a place of shade. And God says, I will be that place for you. Notice these titles for God. Dwelling in the shelter of the Most High. That's focusing on the divine sovereignty and majesty of God over the whole world. El Elyon, the Most High. He's above all of it. Almighty, El Shaddai, emphasizing God's omnipotence. There is no one who is stronger than he is. Then we're going to see in verse 2, I will say to the Lord, all capital letters, L-O-R-D, that means Yahweh. That's God's covenant-keeping name. Eternal God always is, always will be, always has been, forever will be, and never goes back on his promises with you or with me. And then my God, in whom I trust God, that's Elohim, that's referring to the supreme nature of God as creator over his creation. The psalmist says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. Notice how personal this is. He is my fortress. He is my refuge. If you dwell with the Most High, he will be a personal fortress to you. If you just dabble in the Most High, there's nothing personal about that relationship. But he dwells. He's my refuge. He's my fortress. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, men are apt enough to proclaim their doubts and even to boast of them. Indeed, there is a party nowadays of the most audacious pretenders to culture and thought who glory in casting suspicion on everything. Hence, it becomes the duty of all true believers to speak out and testify with calm courage to their own well-grounded reliance upon their God. Let others say what they will. Be it ours to say of the Lord, He is our refuge. He's our refuge. He's a fortress. Come what may, he can't be destroyed. I'm hidden in him, I'm protected, I'm safe, and I'm unafraid. I'm unafraid. My God in whom I trust, the psalmist says. You don't trust in someone that you don't know. You would not give yourselves over to somebody that you don't know. You don't trust someone that you don't know. So the psalmist says, I trust him because I know him. I know he's good. I know he's working for my good and my greatest joy in him. And therefore, I can trust him. I would ask you just in those two verses, number one, are you dwelling with God or dabbling in the things of God? And number two, do you trust him because you know him or do you struggle to trust him because you don't fully know him? You don't know that he's good. The jury's still out in your mind. Is God good? Well, the psalmist is going to say, amen and amen, he is good. Verse 3, he delivers you from the snare of the trapper. So the psalmist is going to say, this is why I trust God, and this is what he can do for you. He delivers you from the snare of the trappers. And you could also put your name wherever you see the word you. You could put your name in there. He delivers Patrick from the snare of the trapper. He delivers Patrick from the deadly pestilence. He covers Patrick with his wings, with his pinions. He does these things. He's a deliverer. He's a protector. Verse 4, we actually talked about last week in Revelation 12, the idea of those two wings that uh, protect Israel in the later days of uh, the tribulation. Under his wings, you can seek refuge. This is 
from Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. This is language from the Old Testament in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy that God carried you out on eagle's wings and sheltered you, covered you, protected you. He's also a shield and a bulwark. Namely, his faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. A shield, that's not an arm shield. When you think of a shield, you think of, at least I do, I think of just a big circle on your arm. You run, you fight, and you can uh, guard yourself a little bit here and there from uh, an arrow or a, a sword coming down on you. That's not the word here. The word here is for a full body shield, a shield, a shield that covers every inch of you. God is a shield and covers all of you. He's a bulwark. He's a fortress, a mighty fortress is our God. He's a walled city. Catapult, do whatever you want. Try to ram your way through. It's not going to work. God is a bulwark. Augustus took Lady, which uh, we, we sang one of his songs with um, Rock of Ages. He wrote this, A sovereign protector I have, unseen yet forever at hand, unchangeably faithful to save, almighty to rule and command. He is your sovereign protector. But notice what he says in verse 4. Under his wings, you may seek refuge. You may do this. This is open to you. It's an offer to anyone. It's an invitation to all. Anyone who wants to come and find protection and satisfaction and safety can do so. But my question is, why doesn't everyone? Why doesn't everyone run to God? We look around at us and we see the world looks like it's on fire, right? It just looks like everything is going downhill so quickly. Why doesn't everyone run to God? Well, a few answers. Maybe some people don't think that God's strong enough to deal with their specific problems. If you're here this morning, go back. If that's you and, and you think maybe God's not strong enough, go back to verses 1 and 2. Notice the names of God that that front load this psalm to say, hey, whatever you're going through, God's bigger than it. He's more powerful than it. Maybe they think that they're strong enough and they don't need him. I know I struggle with this a lot. In my life, I have two categories of difficulties. I have categories that small difficulties and categories of big difficulties, right? Big difficulties, I can't do it. I need you, God, please help me. Like when uh, our son was in... Uh, the hospital when he was just a few days old and had to have open heart surgery, I can't do anything, right? I am done. God, you've got this. I can't do it. Strangely, I found that trial easy to go through as far as, it was an incredibly difficult trial, but it was easy to go through as far as I can't do anything. I don't understand how the heart works. I don't know medicine. I don't know any of this stuff. I don't even have the money to provide for this. Like, I can't do any of this. God, this, you've got all of this. But then if I have a cold, it's like, God, I've got this one. You're, you're, you're dealing with other people who have kids that need open-heart surgery. You're dealing with other bigger issues than what I'm going through. So God, I'll, I'll figure this one out. You don't need to worry about this. Small trial, big trial. I don't know if you have those two categories in your mind. That's where I fall a lot. In the small trial, I go, yeah, God, it's, it's, it's easy enough for me to handle this. And so I don't run to my refuge, my fortress, my shield. A third reason, maybe people don't want to Bother him then. If they think that they're strong enough to take care of it, maybe they don't want to bother him with something that they feel they can take care of. Maybe number four, they don't think that things are really that bad. 
Maybe people don't run to God because they don't really think it's that bad. Or maybe they don't think that it should be that bad. I've talked with a lot of people over the years who feel that with kind of a naive peace, life isn't that bad. There are many people who have that sense of it's okay, it shouldn't be that bad, everything's right in the world, and if something goes wrong, that means somebody messed up and they owe it to you to make it better. And these people tend to get bitter very easily because they feel the world should be okay, the world should be easy. I don't really need God. I shouldn't need him because life should be easy. And when it's not, they feel like they've been given a a bad hand. They've been given something to be bitter about. Instead of realizing there's such a thing as wisdom, having peace that in a wise way, not a foolish peace of saying, I think everything should be easy and nothing bad should be going on, but an actual wise peace where you say, I know trouble is coming. I'm not surprised by it. I'm planning on it happening, and therefore I'm constantly running to Christ. There are so many reasons why, in verse 4, though the offer is given to anyone who would seek after God their refuge, there are so many reasons why people don't do it. But I think one last reason that I want to give to you and encourage you with as you leave from here is most people don't know the offer's even there. Most people don't know that the God of the universe is standing, knowing them by name, knowing the number of hairs that are on their head, pleading with them to come to the feast, to find refuge in him. They just don't even know that that invitation is there. And the only way that they're going to know is through you and me being ambassadors of Jesus Christ to go into the world and to give them that invitation. Just like Jesus said in that parable of the wedding feast, to go out into the world and give the invitations to the wedding feast. We, in God's kindness, have heard this invitation. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the the invite that God's given to you to seek refuge in him? Well, if you choose to do so, verse 5, if you choose to cling to him, to find your refuge in him, verse 5 says, you will not be afraid of the terror by night. Literally, it's do not, it's a command, do not ever be afraid. It's the strongest way in Hebrew to present the command. You remember the command from Joshua, be strong and courageous and do not be afraid? This is a stronger way to say it. It's thou shalt not. These are the commands, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the phraseology here. You shall not be afraid. If you trust God, and truly trust him. Don't dabble in trusting him, but you're dwelling in trusting him. You're not going to be afraid. Conversely, if you are afraid, there's an aspect of your trust in God shaking. It's disconnecting. So the psalmist says, if you make him your shield and your bulwark, if you run to him, you're not going to be afraid. Notice what you're not going to be afraid of. The terror by night, the arrow that flies by day, pestilence that stalks in darkness, and the destruction that lays waste at noon. Four different types of peril to mirror the four different titles of God. God's sovereign over all of those things. We have human enemies. We have pestilence, danger, and disease. And notice they go from noon to night, day to darkness. That's a a poetic way of 
of describing everything. It's the bookends of all. It's called a merism. It's like ladies and gentlemen, heaven and earth, young and old. It's a poetic way to say over all of it, there's nothing that you will not be unafraid of. What do you tend to find your peace and your comfort in? Are you dwelling in your shield and your bulwark? Verse 7, there's a beautiful picture here in verse 7. Again, poetic description here in verse 7 that as the chaos is going on around you and as there's a war and as there's a hurricane and as there's just immense chaos going on, you're standing and you're watching. You're not doing anything. Notice what he says. A thousand will fall at your side. You didn't strike them down. 10,000 will fall at your right hand. You didn't do anything about it. And it will not approach you. I love that. It. We don't know what it is. What's it? Is it a battle? Is it a war? Is it COVID? Is it disease? Is it a hurricane? Is it an earthquake? No matter what, it will not approach you. Whatever it is, it's not going to get you. You're just going to look on, verse 8, with your eyes. I love that. You're just going to look on and see everybody falling around you because they don't have a fortress, and you're standing tall because you're hiding yourself in Christ. You'll see the recompense of the wicked. Those that chose not to find their refuge in Christ. Those that dabbled in Christianity, those are the wicked, right? Those are those of whom Jesus says in Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you. You're wicked, you're a worker of lawlessness. You didn't know me, I didn't know you. You knew about me, but that's not dwelling with me. Why is all this going to happen? Verse 9, because you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. You took the invitation in verse 4, you opened the invitation in verse 4, and you said, yes, I will make my dwelling place Jesus Christ. And since he's your dwelling, you will dwell securely. Nothing will touch you. No evil will befall you, verse 10, nor will any plague come near your tent. Why? Because, verse 11, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. This is where uh, the, the concept of a guardian angel comes from. You are given angels to guard you. It doesn't have to be one specific angel. I frankly think that my life probably demands a whole lot of angels that are guarding me. So this is the idea of angels being sent by God on mission for the purpose of protecting you. Verse 12, they will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You'll tread upon the lion, the cobra, the young lion, and the serpent. You'll trample down. Remember those verses, verse 11 and 12. Those probably sound a little bit familiar in your ears because those were the verses that Satan quoted. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus, he spoke these words to our Savior to put him to the the test. And Jesus responds. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. He responds with that verse. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So this is not saying, by the way, this psalm is not saying, do your best to try and get into danger to prove that God is trustworthy. This passage is saying, danger is just going to happen to you. Don't be foolish. So often people say, I'm going to prove that God's faithful. And, you know, they come up with terribly dumb ideas like blindfold myself and walk across the 118 freeway and God will protect me. No, 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 that's not what this is talking about. This is not a promise that God's going to protect your stupidity. This is a promise that God will protect you as just the natural dangers of this world happen. There's a huge difference between testing God and trusting God. 
But if you do trust him, verse 13, you're going to tread upon the lion, you're going to trample down the serpents. These aren't real animals. These are figurative ideas, just like David used dogs and bulls and other psalms. And we get to the end of these 13 verses where the psalmist is just teaching us about God's protection. And it would be very easy for us to conclude that nothing bad will ever happen to Christians. In fact, there are certain streams of Christianity, and we could put it in quotations, there are certain streams of Christianity that would use this verse. I heard them speak these verses at the beginning of COVID, talking about the pestilence of COVID, and saying, if you're a Christian, you're not going to get it. That's not at all what this passage is saying. It seems to say that, but... There are three reasons why I believe it would be very easy for us to say these verses are not speaking about if you're a Christian, nothing bad will ever happen to you. Okay, three reasons. Number one, just hermeneutically, biblical interpretation, if you really, 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 really want a verse to mean something, it's probably not what that verse means, right? If we read this and we're like, oh man, wouldn't it be awesome if I follow God, nothing bad will ever happen to me? I really want this passage to mean that. That's bad hermeneutics, right? That's injecting our desire for the text to say something when the text isn't saying that. Secondly, just in the Old Testament alone, we have enough evidence to know that that does not work. The entirety of the book of Job, right? Here's the most righteous man on the face of the earth, and he has the worst things happen to him, right? To say bad things won't happen to Christians, just look at the book of Job. Look at Joseph right? Look at Joseph's life. Terrible things that happened, sold into slavery, uh, convicted of a crime he didn't commit, all sorts of bad things going on. So clearly the entirety of the Old Testament would say that Psalm 91 is not saying Christians will not have bad things happen to them. The third reason why I think it's pretty easy to see Psalm 91 is not talking about Christians not having bad things happen to them is because Satan wants you to believe that. This is what he used when he talked with Jesus. Satan wants you, if you claim the name of Christ, he wants you to believe that bad things won't happen to you because you're a Christian. That's what he wants you to believe. Therefore, when you suffer, you will then, if you're listening to Satan, if you're buying into this temptation, if you're buying into this lie, you think that Christians won't have any bad things happen to them. When you do have bad things happen to you, you're going to say God didn't make good on his promise. That's the exact temptation that Satan said in the Garden of Eden. You remember in the Garden of Eden, Satan said, did God really say? He's not good and he's not trustworthy. Don't trust him. Don't listen to him. Listen to me. That's what the devil wants you to do. So he, he gets so many Christians this way. Follow Christ and everything will be easy for you. Follow God and everything will go your way. You look at the world around you and it's just a mess. Follow Jesus and nothing bad will ever happen to you. And people start following Jesus thinking that's what they're signing up for. That's why in Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the soils, Jesus even said there is a kind of soil, that rocky soil, that bedrock soil. It receives the seed of the word of God. It starts to grow down roots. It starts to spring up, but then it hits that bedrock, can't grow anymore, shoots straight up out of the soil, and then withers and dies because it has no root. It's not saved. And when the disciples ask, what does that mean? What is that an example of? What's that an illustration of? What does Jesus say? 
the bedrock in that soil is tribulation and hardships and persecution because of the word. And they fall away. They say, I didn't sign up for this. I actually became a Christian, so the bad things don't happen to me. Bad things happen. I guess Jesus isn't keeping his end of the bargain. This is one of the most strategic ways that Satan gets Christians to struggle with their faith. In the midst of suffering, you ask, is God really good? Is he making good on his promises? He said he wasn't going to let me suffer. That's not at all what Jesus said. Actually, turn to Luke chapter 21. Turn to Luke chapter 21. I, I think that this passage is just staggering. If we slow down, if we stop, if we think about these words that Jesus says. Luke chapter 21, verse 16. Jesus says this, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and they're going to put some of you to death. So clearly Jesus isn't saying, follow me and everything's going to go well. He says this, you're going to be hated by all because of my name. Yet, here comes the promise, verse 18, not a hair of your head will perish. Do you hear how crazy that statement is? He said just two verses earlier, they're going to put some of you to death. How did some of the people die that were put to death? Uh, Jesus is speaking of end times, but it happened to the disciples as well. Some of them had their heads separated from their bodies. Some were beheaded. So let's just put beheaded where death is, okay? Some of you, they will behead you but not a hair of your head will perish. Time out, Jesus. I don't know medicine, but that equation doesn't work. They're going to kill you and cut your head off from your body, but your hair's not going to work? I kind of don't care about my hair if my head's detached from my body. What is he saying? I think he's saying, and something that we've said over the last few weeks regarding the tribulation and our time in the midst of those moments in the end times, no one can accuse you successfully. They can kill you, but they cannot kill you eternally. No one can destroy you successfully. God says, yes, they can kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. I will protect you. And in the killing of your body, I will enable you to persevere through that death so that you will not fall away. They can't touch a hair on your head successfully. And then he says this, verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. I love the King James version of that verse. Literally, you will possess your souls only if you are patient in your suffering. In the midst of suffering, you stay under it, you remain under it, you stay in the midst of it, and you're patient. And you say, God, teach me whatever you're going to teach me. Sustain me however you're going to sustain me. Keep me however you're going to keep me, but I'm not leaving, I'm not fleeing, I'm not running away. The reality is that suffering comes when something that we love is threatened. Suffering comes when something that you and I love and value is threatened. And what we do at that moment tells us what possesses our souls. Are we living for God? Is he our treasure? Or are we living for an idol? Is something else a treasure? Think about finances, for instance. If you love money and money somehow goes away, if you have all of your hope and dreams in the stock market and it crashes, then you are going to suffer. 
because what you love has now been threatened. But instead, if in the midst of suffering that you're going through, you give your soul to the Lord and he possesses it, then you can say, God, you're my life. And because you have given your soul to him, your soul is possessed. It's safe. It cannot ever be taken away. This is what C.S. Lewis said so well. Don't place your hope in something that could potentially be taken away. Put all of your hope in something that can never change. The only thing that believers can really lose in suffering are things that are ultimately expendable. Yes, it's painful, but ultimately things that we lose as believers, if we have our hope in God alone, we won't ever lose him. And we cannot ultimately, truly, genuinely, and eternally be supernaturally harmed. So Jesus in Luke 16 In Luke 21, clearly says, you're going to have a lot of bad things happen to you, but I'm going to take care of you. That's what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 91. You're going to have a lot of bad things happen to you, but God will sustain you. He'll take care of you in and through those things. Turn back to Psalm 91, and we will end our time looking at the second point here in Psalm 91. The psalmist has said, this is the protection of the Lord for believers. This is what God is like for those who are his own. Now, God takes up the pen, as it were, and he's going to write verses 14 through 16, and he's going to teach us about the promises that he has towards his people. So that's point number two. Point number one, the psalmist teaches on the protection of the Lord. Point number two, the Lord is going to teach on his promises towards his people. God is going to teach about his promises toward his people. Verse 14, because he has loved me, God is writing, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. There it is right there. If you think Psalm 91 is about God keeping you from trouble, that becoming a Christian means you're never going to have anything bad happen to you, just finish out the psalm. Verse 15, I will be with him in trouble. It's not, I will deliver him from all of trouble. I will will keep him out of any trouble. No, I'm going to let him go through trouble, but I'll be right there with him. It's Psalm 23 language, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you're with me. It's not, even though I have been preserved and kept from the valley of the shadow of death. No, it's, I'm walking in the middle of it. And God's sovereignly allowing me to do so. But because he's with me, I know that in the midst of my trouble, I will be safe. There are eight different verbs here of what God will do for believers. Number one, deliver. Number two, set him. Number three, answer him. Number four, be with him. Number five, rescue him. Number six, honor him. Number seven, satisfy him. And number eight, show him salvation. It's literally at the very end of verse 16, let him see my salvation. Literally, I will cause him to feast on salvation. I will enable him and cause him to feast. In the midst of your trouble, when everything's being taken away, when you're losing everything, when you've gone down to the most minimal uh, feasting that you possibly can have, God says, I'm going to give you a feast of everything. These are the promises that God has made for believers. So, what are the conditions? What are the conditions for someone in order to to have these promises be true of you? What must you do? Three things he tells us. Verse 14, love God. Verse 14, know God, know his name. 
And verse 15, call upon God. Know, love, call, call upon him, know him, love him. Let's start with the first one in verse 14. Because he has loved me. This isn't the usual Hebrew word for love. It actually occurs only 11 times in the Old Testament. And it means a strong desire and passion based on what you know about someone. You love them because you know them. And here it's a passion for God because you know him. Can I ask you this morning, do you have a strong passion for God? Do you love God? Do you worship him? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. He's going to be cut off. It's not believe. It's not know. Yes, those things are true, but it's a love. True, genuine, saving belief is loving Christ. Do you love him? You're not going to love him if you don't know him. And that's why the second condition is you have to know him. I'm going to set him securely on high because he's known my name. That's why we gather. That's why we study the character of God in the word. He's spoken to us clearly in this book, and we need to hear a revelation of his character so that we know him, so that we would love him. You're not going to love someone you don't know. Do you know God? Can I ask you two things? Do you know who he is, who he claims to be, and do you know what he claims to be doing? Do you know who he is and what he claims to be doing? Those two things, who God is and what he's doing, those two things are the ballast in our boat in the midst of suffering. You guys remember what ballast is? It's that weight in a boat that in the middle of a storm, as the storm's going through and it's blowing over the boat, it won't tip over because there's a weight that holds it down in the water. In the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of circumstances that are beyond our control and chaotic and despairing and depressing, who God is and what he's done will be the ballast to hold you safely and secure, securely. So just quickly, who is he? He's sovereign. He's sovereign. Randy Alcorn says it this way. If you have ever been in a situation of suffering, this issue is not theoretical, philosophical, or theological. It's deeply personal. Logical arguments won't satisfy you. In fact, they might even offend you. You need help with the emotional problem of evil and suffering, not merely a logical problem. So by all means, speak with a friend and perhaps a pastor or a counselor. But in the process, don't seek comfort by ignoring truth. When you try to soothe your feelings without bothering to think deeply about ideas, you're asking to be manipulated. Quick fix feelings won't sustain you over the long haul. On the other hand, deeply rooted beliefs, specifically in a worldview grounded in scripture, will allow you to persevere and to hold on to a faith built on the solid rock of God's truth. That's why we sang that song earlier. He is the solid rock. He's sovereign. There is no maverick molecule in the world. He ordains. He is sovereign. Secondly, he's absolutely always forever good. Just let me read some Psalms for you. Psalm 45, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and he is kind in all of his deeds. Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. Psalm 18, 30. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Psalm 119, 68. You are good, and you do good. Psalm 119, 75. 
I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So even in the the affliction and the suffering that God brings, it's because he's good. It's not in spite of his goodness. It's not that maybe his goodness is now uh, up for debate. No, the suffering that he allows for believers is a byproduct of his goodness. It's It's an emanation of his goodness. Psalm 73, verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel and to all who are pure in heart. Charles Spurgeon said, God would sooner cease to be than to cease to be faithful and good. God would sooner cease to exist than to stop being faithful and good. He's sovereign, he's faithful, he's good. That's who he is. What is he doing? For believers, Romans 8.28 says that he is always working for your greatest good. Who he is, what he's doing. He is sovereign, he is always good, and what is he doing? He's always working for your greatest good. Charles Spurgeon says, everything that happens to you, if you're a believer, is for your own good. If the waves roll against you, it only speeds your ship toward the port. If lightning and thunder comes, it clears the atmosphere and promotes your soul's health. You gain by loss. You grow healthy in sickness. You live by dying. You are made rich in losses. Could you ask for a better promise than this? It is better than all things, that all things should work for my good, than all things should be as I wish them to have been. It's better that all things work for my good than that all things should be as I wish them to have been. I love that quote. All things might work for my pleasure and and yet might all work for my ruin. If all things do not always please me, they will always benefit me. This is the best promise in all of life. So the condition for someone to find their refuge in Christ, for all of these things to be true of them, they have to love Christ. You're not going to love someone you don't know. Do you know that God is sovereign, he's good, and he's working for your greatest good? And finally, have you called upon him? Verse 15, he will call upon me, and I will answer. This is prayer. What do you do if you find yourself in the midst of suffering? You say, God, I'm calling upon you. I know you're good. I know you're sovereign. I know you're working for my good. I trust you. I love you. Help. This psalm teaches us to learn the strategic art of retreating into the Lord and finding refuge in him alone. Sovereign over all of your suffering, just like Job said in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I will worship and trust. Trust God's protection, trust God's power, and trust God's peace. So Psalm 91 gives us a beautiful picture of the confidence that we can have in our refuge, in Christ, in the midst of suffering. And I just, I want to ask you, what are you going through right now in your life? What sorrow are you dealing with? What difficulty are you dealing with? What trial are you going through? What relational brokenness are you going through? You can take this psalm and say, I'm going to call out to God. I'm going to dwell in his presence. I know that he is good and sovereign and working for my good. And I love him in the midst of it all. We can do that because we have a savior who did that before us to show us by example what that looks like. Remember Jesus pleaded with Jerusalem. He said this on Wednesday night. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I wanted to gather you under my wings, like a mother hen gathers her chicks, and yet you were not willing. 
a beautiful example of that. When birds are protecting their young. I I read a book a while back about firefighters that uh, would go out and have the most dangerous experiences in fighting fires. And and one went out and they they found a bird that had its wings out, just covered in ash, dead. And as they went to uh, just let the ashes fly away and they poked at that uh, just carcass of of the mother bird, the ashes floated away and they found that there were babies alive under her wings in the midst of the bones and the decay around them. And they made it. They lived. How? They lived because the mother chose disaster and death in order to protect her young. Jesus did the exact same thing for us. He said so much to Jerusalem, but he did that for us. He covers us in such a way that the truest disaster in all the world fell on him and crushed him on the cross so that you and I could go free. We could live. Robert Murray McShane said it this way in a book entitled The Infinity of Christ's Sufferings. He says, He was without any comforts of God. He had no feeling that God loved him. He had no feeling that God pitied him. This is Jesus on the cross. He had no feeling that God supported him. God was his son before now that son, now that son had become all darkness. He was without God. He was as if he had no God. All that God had been to him before was taken from him now. He was godless, deprived of his God. He had the feeling of the condemned when the judge says, depart from me, you cursed, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He felt that God said that same thing to him. I feel like a child casting a stone into a a deep ravine in the mountainside and listening to hear its fall, but listening in vain. This is the hell that Christ suffered. The ocean of Christ's sufferings is unfathomable. He was forsaken in the place of sinners. If he is your surety, you will thus never be forsaken. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer is for you and for me. The Father did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He has done the hardest things. He'll be with you in the easier things. If Jesus was patient in the midst of his suffering, then we can be patient, worry-free, anxious-free in the midst of our sufferings. We know that they won't ultimately, supernaturally, and eternally destroy us. They will all make us more like Jesus. So this morning, I I want to encourage you. I want you to to hear the invitation of verse 4. You may seek refuge in Christ. He can be your hideaway. As we listen to this song, I, I want you to be asking your own soul, God, do I love you? Do I know you? Am I calling out to you? And I plead with you even now, call out to your Savior and make him your refuge this morning. Let's listen and meditate uh, on this song as it's played.